The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placer Dome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome to the program. Well, it's good to be on with you. Give us a little background, if you would, on PGMs. Well, the platinum group metal complex, which is the most significant two metals, are platinum and palladium. They're one of the smaller precious metal segments after gold and silver. The market is about one-tenth the size in terms of production of the gold market. It's an interesting market in that it's got the combination of precious metals, store of value type valuation that you'd use towards gold, but a strong industrial component. The biggest use today for platinum and palladium going to catalytic converters for gasoline and, and diesel engines. And that's been the really significant growth component to demand for these two metals, which pretty much has been uninterrupted growth year on year since about probably 1980 for the two metals. And what's interesting about platinum and palladium as well is that their production is very concentrated in high political risk jurisdictions. About 90% of production comes out of southern Africa and Russia. And your listeners may be aware that there's been a lot of challenges uh, recently for the mining companies, particularly for platinum, in South Africa, which produces about 75% of the world's platinum today, with labor problems, problems getting enough energy, and operating costs that are uh, basically higher than the current price of the metals. Aren't these countries like South Africa and Zimbabwe cutting their own throats more or less? when they do things like nationalize the mines or make it difficult to get in there when you have a jurisdiction like Canada and the Yukon that doesn't have any of these political risks? Well, there's no question it's not helping their industry. The challenge is that those countries are going through significant social and political turmoil right now, and they're you know, trying to settle on their way that they're going to legislate mining and, and the way labor and 
and industry is going to you know operate together in those countries there's been a significant move towards nationalization or partial nationalization requiring the mining companies to vest ownership in the project to other you know groups or to the government and that makes it really difficult for these companies to justify reinvesting new capital and 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 keeping the mines you know up to date and one of the issues that you've got you know like the gold mining industries these mines particularly in South Africa are very old very deep very narrow seams you know most of these zones that they're mining in South Africa they're mining at depths of you know thousands of feet deep in the earth where it's quite hot temperatures and these zones might be anywhere from 3 to 10 feet in width so they're very narrow very difficult conditions and almost all done by hand and it just makes it a very difficult situation to try to even shift over to a more mechanical modern mining configuration so they're not cheap to operate Perhaps that's another reason why the big major Anglo-American shut down their operations in South Africa. Are they looking at the Canadian Yukon? Do you expect anything to go on in the future with perhaps your company and a major like Anglo-American? There's a real scarcity, in part just because of the geology. There are not very many places in the world outside of Southern Africa and Russia that host large deposits. Stillwater mining here in the United States, in Wyoming and Montana, they're one of the biggest North American producers. And then the Sudbury Mining District up in Canada is the second largest producing region out of those mines. There's a few other companies, but it's a really small space compared to, say, the gold space where you have hundreds and hundreds of development stage gold assets that are being looked at and developed or mined you know, around the world. There are a few promising regions such as the Yukon. You know, Our particular project up there is something at 7 million ounces of platinum and palladium. It's world class in terms of its scale. In fact, it's in the top three of projects outside of Southern Africa for development stage. So it's really a project that companies are starting to take note of, and I think we're going to see more interest in projects that are located in lower political risk areas in the platinum palladium space. Now it's open pitable and easier to access as opposed to the mines you just discussed in Southern Africa. Does that mean that the cost structure is going to be significantly less? And I understand you brought on John Sagman as COO, who has a great deal of experience streamlining production costs. Yeah, this project is fairly unique in the platinum space. As I said, most of the active platinum mines today are deep, underground, narrow seams that they're basically mining. They sometimes they refer to them as reefs. And these things are mostly hand mining situations. The project that we're looking at in the Yukon for Prophecy Platinum is one in which we're looking, it looks more similar to a modern, large-scale open-pit gold mine. The mineralization for the, the platinum and palladium, nickel and copper, all occur together. And these occur as wide, wide widths, up to 1,500 feet in thickness. They start right at surface and are associated with uh, what we call ultramafic rocks, which is a geologic term for high iron-bearing rocks that come from deep in the earth. And these come right to surface at this area and would allow us to have very modern, large-scale equipment that would make our unit cost to mine an ounce of platinum or a ton of ore very low by comparison to techniques that are requiring a lot of handwork. One of the things I like about platinum and palladium as an investor and one that follows this sector is that these two metals should not be related to gold and do not always follow gold. Platinum and palladium as of late have been trading at a premium to gold, gold being much more speculative and less of an industrial metal, more popular in the markets when economic news is troubling whereas PGMs tend to fare better when industrial production picks up or we get hints that the economies of the world are improving. 
Furthermore, no matter what else is going on in the world economically, the production and sale of automobiles in China continues to rise as that country swiftly catches up with the rest of us, becoming a first world power. These new automobiles will continue to use catalytic converters for quite some time, Greg. Yeah, in general, in the developing world, and you know, we're hearing this brick, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, those developing countries in particular are seeing tremendous growth in their automobile industry. And particularly, you know, we hear the headlines all the time about the pollution in, in places like China. They're going to be required to adopt more North American, European type standards for catalytic converters to reduce the automobile component of their pollution. You're seeing not only increased number of cars that are coming into those markets, but the requirement to have catalytic converters that contain more of the platinum palladium metal, which act as catalysts to remove those pollutants, is going to be critical. And so that combination of the fastest growing part of the world in terms of automobile purchases with the need for more metal in their catalytic converters is going to be a really strong component for growth for platinum and palladium. Now, I know there are strong signs that the automobile industry is gaining steam right here in Southern California, as new and used car sales are picking up. You're not necessarily relying on the North American market for your offtake, are you? Well, I think most analysts are projecting that eventually we're going to see a turnaround in the U.S. market that way. A lot of people are saying it's been several years since we've seen a really robust automobile sector in terms of growth. But, you know, I think most of the growth in demand that's being projected for platinum and palladium is coming out of the developing world and backed up with continued consumption of new automobiles in North America and Europe. Europe's also been quite weak, the automobile sector. It's been one of its weakest periods. So I think the opportunity probably to see growth as that economy turns around in the next couple of years will only add to these current estimates of, of growth of demand. Speaking of analysts, GMP Securities issued a buy recommendation a couple of weeks ago for a $2 share price for Prophecy Platinum. Let's talk about that. GMP is a mid-sized investment banking group out of Canada. They are considered one of the top groups for following the mining sector. They probably are one of the most on top of the, the platinum palladium industry. Before initiating their research report on Prophecy Platinum, they put out an industry sector review in which they were very bullish, in part because of the demand growth that we've been talking about for automobiles and other industrial uses for platinum and palladium. But really, on top of that, it's the fact that we've been seeing falling production of these metals, you know, not just this year, but really the production of platinum and palladium peaked in 2005, 2006. So though it's been in the headlines lately, GMP pointed out in their report, this is a trend that's been in, in motion for six plus years, and that anytime you get a sector that's got growing demand, where you're increasing consumption year on year, and falling production is a great recipe for increased metal prices. And of course, increased metal prices will generally reflect in a multiple oftentimes in the equities that are mining or exploring and developing for those prices. So they're very bullish on the platinum palladium sector. They point out that there are very few growth opportunities, new development stage projects that are outside of Southern Africa to even invest in. So yeah, they were quite excited to, to work with us in terms of looking at taking our particular investment story out to investors. And you've been doing a great job of branding with regard to Prophecy Platinum. Well, I think we've got pretty good awareness. This company is relatively new, so this is an opportunity that's, that's pretty early days in terms of overall investor awareness, but I think we've done a good job of starting to get the name out. There just aren't that many companies that are working in platinum and plating. The new management team, which came in in November, including myself, 
John Sagman, our Chief Operating Officer, and, and Jeffrey Mason, our Chief Financial Officer. We've been working, particularly over the last several months, on, on doing the technical work, really diving in, understanding the geologic model, understanding the next steps in engineering and the opportunities. So we've just started to get out to meet with investors in the last month or so, starting to introduce this to large institutional investors, the guys that buy millions of shares. And we're getting a good response from them in terms of interest, particularly with the news headlines that we're seeing out of South Africa and other places, which suggests a real problem in terms of finding new sources of supply. Well, you have a high-profile CEO. That would be you. How did you get from gold to silver to platinum and palladium, Greg? Give us a little background on this transition. Uh, well, yeah, I guess it's been an interesting uh, career. I started out my career with Placer Dome, who became Barrick Gold, the world's largest gold mining company, and had a great opportunity to be able to work on projects throughout the world during my tenure with them. Then in 1998, along with two other geologists, started Nova Gold, which has become one of the, the biggest gold resource reserve holding companies in the world with projects in Alaska and Western Canada. And I was with Nova Gold for about 12 years as one of the, the founders there. Had a great success there. We grew that company from you know a very small startup company, about a $50 million market cap to you know ultimately, I think at one point, it was about a $4 billion company. And then took a period of the last few years, uh, went down and worked in South America with a company called South American Silver. That was an exciting new place for me to be working. Hadn't spent time previously in my career down in South America, but again, that's one of the world-class districts for large, particularly copper, gold, and, and silver projects. And that company had a great success as well. We grew a 100 million ounce silver deposit into a 400 million ounce silver deposit. But a lesson in geopolitics, oftentimes when you're working outside of the U.S. or Canada, politics starts to come into your projects in a, in a very significant way. And for South American silver, we ended up seeing our very large project nationalized by the government in Bolivia. So though we had had tremendous technical success and early financial uh, success in the market, clearly it was a huge disappointment for, for the team and for our investors to, to see all that effort fall to the wayside. So the opportunity to step on board on a project located in Canada, in the Yukon Territory, with all the really key elements that we look for in terms of facilitating development, scale of the asset. This is a project that's large enough that this is going to be something that's going to be interested to the very biggest mining companies as a potential uh, partnership or acquisition. 7 million ounces of platinum palladium metal right next to the Alaska Highway, which gives us access to world-class ports in Alaska by a paved highway. It's an area that's had historic mining. It was a mining operation in the 1970s, and it's an area that's seen continued placer mining in the streams around the area. We've got the native people there, what they call First Nations in Canada, very, very supportive of the project. This is in the, the core of their traditional territory and then working closely with us to, to facilitate the development. So all those key elements that one would see and want to see in a project, in my mind, are here in this particular opportunity. And it's in a metal that's very, very rare to find large deposits outside of high geopolitical risk areas. So I was excited to come on board here. The team's been in place since November. And as I said, we've been focused on some of the initial technical work to get everything where it needs to be. And at this point, we're ready to get out and start meeting with investors and, and demonstrating the project we've got and the opportunity at an early stage to see something that uh, can really grow in value. Many of the analysts, newsletter writers, media pundits such as myself, along with investors, are asking this question. If you have the resource, if you've proven it out, 
in this challenging market, when are you going to go into production? Yeah, that's, that's always the challenge, and you know, it can take years. I mean, the average project literally from early discovery phase, when you first realize you've got something, through the engineering phase into the design and eventual construction and permitting phase can take 10 to 15 years. It often requires multiple companies to become involved. So like my experience at Nova Gold and, and South American Silver, we are on this project in the Yukon, like the fifth or sixth company to have worked on this project. And we have the benefit of all that historic work to date. This is an opportunity because the infrastructure is in place to be able to move this project quite quickly. So we actually believe that we could be at a feasibility stage, which is your final engineering stage, within two years and start to construct on the project within a, a year, potentially, of receiving permits. So it's a project that could move very rapidly by, by industry standards, and that's aided by the fact that the permitting and infrastructure look like they should be fairly straightforward. So this is a project in its own right that really could be producing cash flow within just a few years. And you know that's fairly rare in our industry, particularly with increased scrutiny on environment, permitting, and so forth that you're seeing not only in North America but around the world. So you know this is a project that we can do right, and because it's got so many of the elements that you need to build a mine already in place, we think we can do it fairly quickly. That sounds fantastic. In addition to your flagship Wellgreen project that we've been talking about in the Yukon, you have the Shakespeare Project in Sudbury, Ontario, that's near production. Tell us about that. Our Shakespeare Project is located in the Sudbury Mining District that we referred to earlier as one of the, the major producing regions in North America for platinum and palladium and nickel and copper. And this is a project that we acquired last year, 100% interest in. It was an operating mine from 2008 to 2012. But because of low metal prices, it was shut down. We're quite excited, particularly with John Sagman, our chief operating officer's experience. He spent 20 years with the majors in the Sudbury District, that being Extrata and Valet. We think that we have some opportunities for significant cost reduction that we're looking at, including a, an, an alternate shipping route to the, the milling and smelting facility as well as, as looking at reduction of our operating costs. And so we're, we're right now studying this. The opportunity here is that this is an open pit mine. It has been mined up until last year. It's fully permitted and ready to go. So either because of a rise in metal prices, which would turn it back on, or because we can reduce operating costs uh, at today's relatively modest prices, of particularly the nickel and copper, we think that this is something that could be turned on fairly quickly and turn into a, a cash flow producer for the company. And when we look at our, our estimates of what that might look like, you know, potentially it could pay for our engineering and development costs of the uh, Wellgreen project, which would be quite an exciting development for the company because you'd be self-funded through at least the, the engineering and design phases of the project. In the interim, how are you financed for your projects going forward? Well, right now the company is in better shape than many of our, our peers. We've got about $2 million in cash, and we have been talking with a number of investors who've put money in the company uh, previously about doing an additional financing that would allow us to do a program for 2013 that would include engineering and metallurgical test work to demonstrate uh, the levels of recovery and production we would expect uh, for the project, as well as to undertake basic new expansion drilling. We've got some exciting targets that could be potentially even as large as the current resource that we have already defined, as well as additional drilling to confirm our confidence in the resource to take it towards that confidence level you'd want to see in a reserve. We're in pretty good shape. We will be raising some money here next few months as part of uh, preparations for our summer field program. 
and then we would anticipate being able to come back to the market first quarter of next year with a substantial update on our engineering and, and our resource on the project, which would be an important milestone that investors would want to see. And Greg, tell us about your share structure, if you don't mind. Right now, the, the company is, is fairly tightly structured. We've got around 68 million shares outstanding, which on a per ounce of platinum basis means that you've got you know significant leverage to the metal got about $150 worth of uh, platinum and palladium metal per share. The company has uh, significant holdings from insiders. Uh, we do believe in being an owner-builder team. We've got about 6% ownership. And if you look at the insider filings here over the last few months, you'll see that um, we've all been buying shares to a significant degree at these uh, current very attractive prices. I mean, I think it's worth you know, maybe just mentioning uh, where we are in the sector. It's been a very challenging period in the market for the precious metals in general. If we look back, gold bottomed, seems like a long time ago, but in 1999, it hit $250 an ounce. And then it it hit that same level again in 2001. And we've had a series of consolidations in the gold and silver and platinum space since that point as the metal price has risen to new highs. And then often we've seen between a year to two year kind of consolidation periods before moving to new highs again. This last peak in the market was December 2010. And that's when most of the mining companies hit their price peaks. The metals peaked just a bit later than that. And we've been in a consolidation correction phase since that period. And I was just recently looking at some presentation materials for a a technical analyst in the sector, and he was showing a very long-term chart that demonstrated the current valuation in the market of the mining companies versus the metal is at the lowest prices on that ratio since 1999 and the crash in 2008. So it looks like, you know, at this point, the sector has gone through such a, a significant consolidation that it's at one of those rare once-in-a-decade type price points. And all the negativity that we see in the market right now, I think, suggests that we may be very near to a turning point, which could be a, you know, a very significant opportunity for investors in the sector. And you're all increasing your share position with your own money. I'm sure you have options, but as my friend, analyst, and newsletter writer Dudley Baker would say, you've got skin in the game. How many companies out there now are putting their money where their mouth is as far as the management is concerned? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really a statement for how strongly we feel that this is a, an outstanding value at this current share price level. You know, effectively, if we look back in our own company's history, we'd have to go back to the point prior to the announcement of the seven million ounce resource to find a share price level at this point. So, effectively, the market has taken all of the increased share price out since we discovered seven million ounces of platinum. So, you're buying the company at the same price you could have bought it before that was discovered. And I think that our team collectively believes that with the opportunities on the engineering side, the fact that this asset is an open, pitable, very large-scale platinum-palladium asset, which could be producing very cost-effectively in the lower quartile, lower 25th percent of global mining costs, that this is an opportunity that has tremendous upside potential. I mean, you may recall, Ellis, in the past, looking at some of the presentations for Nova Gold and South American Silver, we've shown a a valuation change that typically happens in the sector as companies advance from early development stage through advanced development stage into production. And you see that same pattern in the platinum companies. And just to kind of give you an indication of what those values are looking like, the two producers of platinum and palladium in North America, that would be Stillwater and North American Palladium, currently traded around $170 of metal 
per ounce in the ground. That's what the market is currently valuing those companies at, which is less than their profit margin per ounce. At the advanced development stage, so this is a stage before you construct and go into production, the average for the advanced developers is only $30 per ounce. So it's a, it's a huge discount on the value once those assets are in production. And the average valuation for the early development stage, so the, the first engineering stage where we are today, is around $3 an ounce. So just by moving your project from early development stage to advanced development stage, you potentially have a 10x gain in market value. And as you take it from advanced developer up to producer, you know, potentially there's another you know, 6 to 10x increase in value. And so for investors who can identify, whether it be in gold, silver, or platinum, opportunities at that early stage, once there's a resource and once there's a first engineering stage to demonstrate viability, this is one of those places in the market where one can see with the right team in place and the right asset, huge multiples on their investment uh, over a, a three or four year period. And from following you over the years, it's safe to say that these are opportunities that you like. You like to come in way into the radar. Of course, you increase the visibility of the company when that happens, and then you assist in taking that company in early stages all the way into fruition. That's really the, the opportunity, and I think when investors can, can team up with groups in the sector that have serial success, I think it's, it's a real opportunity. When you've got the components that people look at are the people, the property, the ability to raise money, and the jurisdictional location. Is it in a place that I can feel safe? I'm going to be able to develop my asset. And when you've got those three or four components in place, and you're at the early stage, and you're in a market that's been in correction phase for more than two and a half years, you've got the recipe for a very exciting investment entry point and an opportunity to be able to participate with those experts in that sector in terms of future revaluation. And, you know, this is a cyclical market. The mining companies move with the metal prices and sentiment for the sector. It's been a very negative sentiment environment here for the last two years. And that will have an end, and it'll probably be a surprise when it does end, and it will start moving into a bullish phase where people are worried about missing their profit opportunity. And when it does, people that have been picking away at high-quality names at this point in the market, I think, will be well rewarded. Well, Greg, this has been a great interview. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Well, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to updating you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, President and CEO of Prophecy Platinum trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or find the Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as NKL.V, and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy's 100% open-pitable Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium 7 million ounce resource that creates very compelling economics. Conveniently located in Canada's mining-friendly Yukon Territory, Wellgreen is just 9 miles by all-weather road from Alaska Highway leading to Alaska's Haines Deep Seaport and the Far East markets beyond. Platinum and palladium are key components in catalytic converters, and as automobile production continues to grow worldwide, the demand for these key metals shall continue to increase. As geopolitically sensitive traditional mining areas in southern Africa become expensive and difficult to do business in, Prophecy Platinum remains a potentially attractive investment opportunity. Visit prophecyplatinum.com. 
The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join me now for a conversation with Stuart Ross, the president of El Tigre Silver Corp. Stuart, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, Ellis. Glad to be here. Since I've seen you last, you've published some new drill hole results. Yes, we have in fact received assay results on the first six holes. We published those in a news release. They're confirming the prior drilling in the area and they're confirming that the target that we're looking for is there. We're continuing to drill it. We're at this point past 3,200 meters out of the 5,000 meter program. So we should be done uh, early April with the whole program. As more assay results come in, we'll be publishing them. What the assay results are showing us is confirmation that the target that we're drilling out to update our 43101 is as we previously thought. And it's the drill results are continuing to confirm that. We're very happy with that. Of course, you're drilling to determine the resource that you have in El Tigre long beyond what you have in the tailings. Although you're an exploration company and shall continue to explore for quite some time, you're also a near production company and you should be ready to go into production by the beginning of next year. Is that correct? Yes, it is. We're in the process of completing a funding for that production facility that will allow us to process the tailings. Along with the tailings, we'll be processing uh, the facility we're building will allow us uh, rock crushing, so we'll be processing some of the mine rock that is actually on the site. We'll mix about 25% of the mine rock with 75% tailings for our mill feed and be in production. It'll take us 12 months from the time the funding is completed to start the production. We'll be producing silver dory on site and that production facility will be expandable and will be the same facility that we will need to actually process mine rock. The area that we're drilling, as we drill the 50-meter spacings, our drill results come back from assay, and the pulps are then sent out for metallurgical. So we have first indications of what the metallurgical recovery on that rock would be, and we would hope that prior to working through the tailings, which is a considerable amount of time, we would be able to uh, start mining in that Gold Hill, Mule Mountain area. Essentially, you're going to be shipping metal right out of there. That's correct. The dory bar is silver that's poured that comes from the tail end of the process as it goes through a Merrill Crow system. And what we end up with is silver bars, and the silver bars at that stage are roughly 90 to 92% pure, and then they're sent to a refiner who turns it into 99%. So we'll be producing silver on site. Give us an idea of where you believe the company is headed over the next 36 months, if you don't mind. No, not at all. In the short term, we'll finish the 5,000-meter drill program. We'll get the funding in place to start construction of the uh, tailings. We'll call it a tailings recovery production facility. That will take us a year to complete and get into production. And once it's in production, we'll continue to drill the existing target out to expand it as it's open to the north and south. So over the next two years, that drilling will continue. The production of the tailings plus mine rock will continue. And we will look to taking the target that we're defining in the southern part of the property and starting an open pit process uh, and I would hope to have that at least have that process started the engineering started on it if not the actual mining of it within 36 months. Tell us about the share structure of your company it's very tightly held. Yes it is we started as a capital pool corp 
and we've done a series of financings since March 2010 when we became public. We've raised somewhere around $12 million. We have approximately, call it 51 million shares outstanding with about 16 million in warrants that are outstanding. So fully diluted is about 66 to 67 million shares. The financing have been done through private placement. There's been no distribution through offering memorandum or um, prospectus other than the Capital Pool Corp, which was three years ago. The stock is fairly tightly held within a group of private individuals who have been very supportive of the company. The vendor of the company is a resident of Edmonton, Alberta, and he has, along with myself, a network of um, fairly high net worth individuals who have participated in these things. They're not traders. They buy the stock to hold it. I do understand distribution. I understand the need for distribution for volume, but I believe that will come at this stage in the game. The market is such that I would rather be in the position we're in, where there's very little stock for sale. That way we hold the price at a fairly reasonable level. It's been a difficult market, and through that difficult market, we've managed to raise the funds necessary to continue with working capital requirements and also a drill program. Well, Stuart, once again, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you again in the near future, back up in the mountains at the LT Gray Camp. Love to have you back anytime, Ellis, and uh, if not, meet you in Hermosillo, and we can have a good steak. Incredible steak, that's for sure. Thanks again, Stuart, for joining me today on the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Stuart Ross, president of El Tigre Silver Corp, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. Join me now for a conversation with Ranting Andy Hoffman. Ranting Andy Hoffman spent 15 years on Wall Street before shifting his focus to precious metals in 2002. Over the past decade, he has become a global expert in gold and silver analysis, and in late 2011, joined Miles Franklin Precious Metals as its marketing director. Andy, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure, Ellis. I was surfing around the Internet this morning, and I found an article which really intrigued me, which is no longer available. Russian leader warns, get all money out of Western banks now. That's Russia talking. Well, you know, what happened in Cyprus is going to have worldwide ramifications, particularly in Europe, but for many more unintended reasons uh, than simply the depositors being stolen from. And one of them, of course, is that the Russians uh, had more money in those large deposits than any other people, and they're pretty angry about it. Uh, there's, there's no secret that Putin is a very rich man these days and uh, hates Westerners, particularly Americans, more than pretty much anyone. And, uh, you know, there are many forms of leverage that he can use to, uh, to get revenge. So really, unless you have physical gold or silver in Cyprus, you've got nothing right now. In Cyprus, they're going to have bigger problems than what they currently have right now. There's going to be uh, inflation coming there because obviously the, the nation is in trouble. And um, at some point, it is going to have to leave the European Union, just like Greece getting all of its bailouts left and right, the situation economically is worse than ever there, and ultimately uh, they are going to exit the euro and there will be inflation. The same thing will happen in Cyprus. As for right now, uh, the small depositors still do have their money, although with uh, currency controls preventing them from getting all of it, and they have an, a nation which is going to be shunned in the uh, economic world for some time to come. Remember, those banks, you can call them good banks or bad banks, they still have massive exposure 
to Greece and the pigs and, you know, the other dying parts of Europe. So if you're a citizen of Cyprus right now, you've just lost something, uh, either your money or your or control of your money. If you don't take your money, what's left out when you can, and convert it to something else that's going to be appreciating, you're going to lose a lot more. I read that Italy and Spain may be next. Is that inconceivable? You know, this is nothing new. These countries all have the same financial and political problems across the board. I mean, fiat currency is a Ponzi scheme, and thus it must get larger to survive. And it must do so without confidence being lost. And therefore, you know, if every time that we speak and every time another year passes, you see greater amounts of debt and, uh, and greater amounts of inflation and greater political instability. And it will keep going on. And right now, the weakest links in Europe are those pigs. Greece is still my bet as the one that really catalyzes the issues because the majority of the people want out of the euro and the country is collapsing as we speak. But right after it are the much larger economies of Spain, Portugal, Italy, and of course France, which tries to pretend it's one of the big Europe countries when in fact it has as much exposure and issues with uh, southern Europe and unemployment and socialism as any country in Europe. Once our currency continues to become devalued for a variety of reasons, do we become a great market for the Chinese and Russians purchasing our assets? Everyone with dollars has been doing that for years. It's, uh, it's no different than, than me trading in my dollars for gold and silver. Nations, people, municipalities, you name it, they realize that they have depreciating assets and they're going to trade them in for real assets, particularly the, the Chinese who desperately need certain things. They are not a big oil producer. They do have to import a lot of their agriculture. So you will continue to see upward pressure on the necessities of life, A, because of population growth, and B, because of nations with these depreciating currencies getting out of them. And again, it's not just the dollar. I mean, we're seeing what I call, I wrote a piece called the final currency war, because you're seeing it across the board. The Japanese have devalued the yen by 20 plus percent this year. They may say we have deflation, but the fact is Tokyo has been the world's most expensive city for six years. So they're devaluing the yen uh, while the British have taken the pound down 10 percent. And of course, uh, you know, Draghi uh, has, has said he will do whatever it takes to save the euro, uh, which means printing money, while at the same time the Fed has announced QE3 and QE4 to cross the board, scramble to get real assets, which is probably why you're seeing record gasoline prices around the world as we speak. Andy, do you see a day when we're attempting to buy our household and energy needs with physical gold and silver? Look, I believe that we are going to, it's not a matter of believe, it will happen. We will have further devaluation of the currency for the reason I announced before. They must keep printing. They must do QE to infinity. They're trying to tell you it's a big recovery here. Uh, when in fact the Fed in the, at the same time is stepping up its money printing, keeping interest rates at all-time lows, while inflation is far from all-time lows. So in time, you'll continue to see uh, a depreciation of the currency, and at some point the confidence will be reduced to the point where it will dramatically reduce, and it will cost a lot more to buy things. And what you're talking about is the worst-case scenario, which usually happens with fiat currencies. I mean, all 599 previous currencies are gone. So, you know, how bad will it be? Will it become a barter society temporarily? It sure could be. But ultimately, the end game will be a new currency that is based on physical gold and silver because they're the only substances that have ever worked throughout history. You would think in the last week or so there'd be a fever pitch with regard to purchase inquiries with Miles Franklin. Are you seeing that? Well, our business has been very good this month. In fact, 
since the Cyprus announcement, it's been, you know, we've had some of our best days, perhaps our best week or two since I've started in the past year and a half. But still, there's much of the population that doesn't quite get it. The powers that be are doing everything they possibly can to make sure that financial markets don't reflect the reality. I mean, really, it's amazing to watch the Dow go up every single day these days. We have three pieces of economic data which were all miserably, miserably below expectations, and yet we have the Dow up again. You know, it's a game of confidence, and uh, right now the dislocation between the Dow Jones Industrial Average and not only economies but other markets throughout the world is greater than I've ever seen in my career. But, you know, in time, economic mother nature always wins. Is that a bubble waiting to pop all over again? When it comes to the Dow, I don't think of it that way because the Dow, to me, is completely unfreely traded, put it that way. It's common knowledge. I mean, the data is out there that the public long ago left the stock markets. I mean, a bubble would mean that people are buying it uh, with the belief it's going to go higher, whereas we know there's been equity outflows for years. We also know last year something like 80% of the hedge funds underperformed the market and the data early this year shows that they're all underperforming too. So the, the hedge funds have been falling off the earth too and therefore I don't see any froth because I don't really see market participation. I see algorithms. You know, I, write, I wrote a piece last year called the Dow Jones Propaganda Average talking about exactly how the Dow moves the same every way each day. So I think this is really just a propaganda piece which doesn't have market participation. The real issue is the bond market. Now again, of course that is manipulated by the Fed because they're buying all the treasury bonds, but there are so many other bonds out there that are tied to what the Fed's uh, actions are, and therefore there are so many people that are in overvalued bonds, and I do believe there's a lot of money to be lost there when the reality of inflation overcomes the Fed's money printing. And of course, you know, they can also say, oh yeah, we'll end QE one of these days, but if they did, that would pop the bond bubble on its own, because right now we know the Fed is buying all of the Treasury bonds out there. Tell us about your blog. It's milesfranklin.com. We are one of the largest bullion dealers in America. I publish a free daily newsletter five days a week. So does David Checkman, our founder. Just go to milesfranklin.com, and it's archived, or you can put your email address in and have it emailed each day. Andy, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Very welcome. I've been speaking with ranting Andy Hoffman, the marketing director for MilesFranklin.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at EllisMartinReport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, a junior mining company with cash to support its current drill program, plus a foundational resource of copper and gold to build upon in Latin America. Bellhaven Copper and Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV and in the U.S. as BHVCF. Dudley Baker is the editor of JuniorMiningResources.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Welcome to this segment of the Ellis Martin Report. Of course, I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm sitting here in our Los Angeles studios with my old friend and frequent guest on the program, Dudley Baker, who's visiting from Mexico, and we were having dinner last night, and Dudley brought up an interesting point that we're going to discuss in this segment. So many of these junior mining companies have discovered a 43-101 compliant resource. They keep growing that resource, 
and yet they haven't gone into production. They've been around for several years. The resource keeps growing, and none of these majors seem to be snapping them up. What's going on? What are your thoughts, Dudley? You know, this is an interesting topic that's recently come to, to my attention. It does beg the question is, what the hell is really going on here? You know, most recently, I've had this conversation not only with you last night, but with my son, that now is majoring in geology, is taking an economic geology class in a graduate program, uh, University of Texas, El Paso. And this exact subject is starting to come up in their class. And they're all saying, why are these companies not taking the projects into production? If they know they've got a significant resource, at what point do you decide to stop being a pure exploration company and take this into the development and the production stage? Now, they may have different reasons, but it's interesting that this is now coming up in the college class. It's almost like maybe a lot of the geos running the companies right now, maybe they got too many gray hairs, and maybe they're being very conservative, and maybe they don't have the expertise, many of them, to take the companies into production. I know me and probably a lot of my subscribers, we get tired of hearing the same names of these companies out there year after year after year, and they continue to raise money and dilute their shareholdings and maybe still continue to expand their resource base, the end game has to be what? Eventually, it has to be to put that company into production. You know, here we are at 2013, and some of these companies four or five years ago were saying, mm -hmm. we'll be in production, we expect to be in production by 2012. We expect to be in production by 2013. Here we are, 2013, nothing's happened. And what's happened to a lot of these juniors in the market, and you'll see it as their share prices have virtually collapsed while those mm -hmm. companies that are in production or near production are doing fairly well, all things considered. Yeah, the one thing we were talking about last night, if I was the head guy at a Barrick or a Newmont, I wouldn't really care what these companies think. I'm gonna come in, whether you wanna call it a hostile, a hostile takeover or whatever, but the opportunity is there. And you know, the question is, why is this not happening on a much bigger scale right now? All I can say, I think my comments to you last night, Ellis, were that I want to thank the company, even though you're a big company with a lot of cash, emotionally, they're almost like a, an average investor. And I think right now, they're almost like the deer in the headlights. They still are not happy with the current market environment. And maybe they're hesitant and cautious right now as well. Instead of being aggressive, if they truly believe that the market is going to be substantially higher for gold and silver, most of us believe this, I would think they would be aggressively stepping in and buying right now. What we know is going to happen, they're going to wait till higher prices. The companies that they want to acquire, they're going to pay double, triple, quadruple. They're going to get excited like the average investor. To me, a lot of the management, it's a big disconnect here. find it interesting. You're making them sound as nervous as the investors, but they're the leaders in the industry. They're the ones that uh, telegraph everything else that's going to happen, and no one's doing the telegraphing right now. So how do we expect this market, in fact, to turn around? It's going to turn around not because you and I want it to turn around or the Newmonts or the Barracks want it to turn around. It's going to turn around based on bigger events in the world, whether that's the banking crisis, just all the fiat currencies in the world, and that our day is going to come here. None of us, it's not going to fulfill our personal wishes and hopes, and we can't determine that timetable. We're substantially off the bottoms, 
And so I feel like, you know, we ought to be having a rally starting soon. Usually there's a spring rally, but it's getting a little bit late here at the moment to get us started. But I think it's still going to happen. If you were an individual or a fund or a group of individuals that were sitting on anywhere from $25 million to $200 million to half a billion dollars right now, wouldn't you be going out and, and rating all these uh, juniors that you could that, that showed some possible value? I would without hesitation. If I was in control of a large block of money, I cannot imagine. I just think that they're all emotionally stuck in the quicksand here. They can't make a decision. You know, that doesn't mean that, that we're at the ultimate lows right now. I mean, maybe we are, but there's no guarantee. This has to be a fabulous time to be accumulating. If I was heading up a big fund right now and had access to this much money and had that decision-making authority, I would be up here snatching up some incredible deals that you just know are going to be worth easily five times what they're selling for today, you know, in the next, at least next year, couple of years. Well, the, there's another disconnect going on, and you were telling me about this, and I experienced it myself when I was in Mexico. The drilling companies down there in Sonora State, they're doing exceptionally well, and they've got almost more business than they can handle. Those are the guys that are going into the ground discovering the resource. It is interesting where a lot of segments of the business are different players, whether that's newsletter writers like myself, every other aspect of the business. It makes sense that, you know, slow times, business has slowed down a little bit for some of us. But yet the drillers seem to be doing very well, especially in Mexico. But those companies that still have cash, they're still trying to build the resource. And again, we get back to, you know, how long do you keep just trying to build a resource instead of taking the damn project into production? I'm looking forward to, to quizzing a lot more of, of my peers and, and other people in the business to what are you looking for? Is there a, a, a fixed mark that you're looking for? One of our companies that I own, it's got a significant silver resource of, of well over 150 million ounces, and it's not in production. And right now, I haven't seen concrete evidence that they're going to, anywhere in the near future, take it into production. Is so, it open pitable? Is it near surface? Uh, yeah, some of, of it is. Some of it's, a lot of it's underground, but they could get stuff started, in my opinion. And the deal is, so w it will be a matter in the coming weeks, I'll be asking these guys specifically, face-to-face -face with the president, what is the plan? And why would you not be pursuing an aggressive strategy here? Let's go get it. You know you've got it. There's no question you've got it. So let's start generating some revenue off this damn company instead of making it a pure exploration play. How many years is this going to go on? We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV and the U.S. as BHVCF. Columbia is no longer the country made famous by Tom Clancy books. Terrorists have been tamed and corruption has been cleaned up. In 2012, the World Bank cited Colombia as the safest jurisdiction in Latin America for foreign investment. The country is now host to at least seven major mining companies and numerous junior exploration companies, companies such as Bellhaven Copper and Gold. The Caca Belt of Colombia hosts more than 63 million ounces of gold in resources and reserves, and more than 40 million ounces of that has been discovered in the past six years. In a depressed market for resource equities, Bellhaven's quality resources at surface and a world-class gold belt, cash to advance current drilling, and strong management make it both a value stock and a growth stock. Find Bellhaven on the web at bellhavencg.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. 
And we're back. Once you know you have the resource, whether it's 43101 compliant or not, nothing's to keep you from getting the permits and going into the ground and, and getting that resource out, much like energy companies are doing right now. If you're an oil or a gas company mm -hmm. and you drill and you find it, you're funding your company right away and you're putting that into more drilling. Sure. And yeah. that's why those companies generate revenue faster than resource companies. It's mm -hmm. just not in the mindset of most precious metals concerns to uh, go into production right away. Do they even know how to do that? I'm just starting to really believe this is a management philosophy and some of the current management is not taking an aggressive position here of taking these projects into production. Well, maybe it's time for the old guard to move on. Well, and this is almost, it's interesting, this is what I, the message that I'm getting from my son through their graduate class here, and I'm going to be hopefully setting in on this class Tuesday, and I'm going to address this subject again with them and truly get firsthand their feedback on this subject. We all know that there's a lot of older geos out there and that we've always heard that now there's a, going to be a big gap between the, the young ones that are majoring in, in geology right now versus the older ones. There's a big gap in this situation here. And I think there's a difference in management philosophy and where this younger group is saying, we'd go get it. We'd go get it. We know the resource is there. And I think it's just the management philosophy of many of the companies, they're, they're too damn conservative for whatever reason, and they're letting those the gold and silver sit in the ground. Even today in these, you know, what we think are kind of depressed prices for gold and silver, historically, we're just so damn close to the top. They should all be making money producing at this level. So I don't get it. You take them into productions, use that revenue now to defer your future exploration costs. You're going to keep expanding the your resource, obviously. Dudley, uh, tell us about your website. Junior Mining Resources. Yeah, that's our, our new marketing umbrella. Uh, things are going well. We've got two different services for pay. Is uh, our standby preciousmetalswarrants.com and thegreedyguru.com. So between those services, we approach the market in different ways. If you just uh, are interested in warrants, which warrants on a company that you like, you know, it gives you an additional leverage, bang for your buck in what will soon, we hope, be a rip-roaring bull market in the resource sector. We follow almost religiously the insider activity, whether it be buys or sells, on any of these companies that we, uh, that we follow. You get to hear an audio of, from me every Thursday and talking about uh, what the markets are doing in my personal portfolio. The Greedy Guru, you literally get the top picks of the pros, where we follow maybe 20-plus other newsletters and analysts, and we focus on only those companies that have three or more other newsletters recommending. Basically, we take the 2,000 or plus companies that are trading, narrow this list down to 20 or so stocks. It's a nice short list and makes it easy for anybody new to the sector. What do I buy? This is kind of the best of the best of the top picks of the pros. So we approach it in different ways and uh, always welcome everybody come take a look and see what we've got to offer. Well, Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you this time in our Los Angeles studios. Thanks for joining me today on the program. This has been a lot of fun to be with you here in the studios, Ellis. It's been a great time. I've been chatting with Dudley Baker of JuniorMiningResources.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, EllisMartinReport.com.
This segment has been sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, a junior mining company with cash to support its current drill program, plus a foundational resource of copper and gold to build upon in Latin America. Bellhaven Copper and Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV and in the U.S. as BHVCF. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.